This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Jolan Insami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Good morning and welcome to America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. And this weekend on America's Roundtable, we are truly honored to be joined by a principal leader and one of America's most brilliant thinkers and a great communicator, Professor Victor Davis Hanson. Victor Davis Hanson, one of America's best known and most prolific historians, grew up on a farm in Selma, California. Professor Hansen is a senior fellow in residence in classics and military history at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. Professor Hansen is the author of hundreds of articles, book reviews, and newspaper editorials on Greek, agrarian, and military history, and essays on contemporary culture. He has written or edited 25 books, the latest of which is The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, and other great books include The Case for Trump, The Second World Wars, The Savior Generals, How Five Great Commanders Saved Wars That Were Lost, From Ancient Greece to Iraq, The End of Sparta, and other excellent titles. And we would like to encourage our engaged listeners to visit victorhanson.com. And without any further delay, welcome, Professor Hanson. A good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Dr. Hanson. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Dr. Hanson, in your excellent I Must Read book titled The Dying Citizen, you brought up the bureaucratic threat of unelected aristocracy, which occupies FBI, CIA, IRS, and DOJ, among others, who in partnership with the media are preserving the deep state at any cost. And this deep state traditionally referred to a state within a state of unaccountable and non-transparent intelligence agencies. And in your book, you described how now, uh, however, I quote, references to a deep state encompass the entire permanent Beltway military echelon, as well as the intelligence and investigative agencies. It also often includes the top officials of the civil service bureaucracies and administrative agencies. In the case of the United States, it can also denote the multifarious and often incestuous, not to mention lucrative bureaucratic relationship with the Washington, New York media, lobbyists, Wall Street and elite universities, unquote. Dr. Henderson, we have two major revelations affecting these structures of the deep state. Uh, one of them is Durham report, and the other one is Congressman Comer's investigation. And let us begin with the Durham report. Uh, the Durham report, which was recently released by special counsel John Durham, uh, reveals and points out that Hillary Clinton campaign 
deployed four nationals, an opposition research outfit, and political insiders to feed the FBI and the media lies about Trump-Russia collusion. Uh, Dr. Henson, how do we dismantle this state within a state mm. and clean up our institutions from corruption and collusion? Well, it's very hard because they are permanent and congressmen, senators come and go as do presidents. And they know the intricacies of the permanent Byzantine bureaucracies much better than do elected officials. As they exercise, unlike the government that has a division of powers, the FBI, try to take one example, the individual agents and executors of that agency exercise, unlike the government, in one body, legislative, judicial, and executive power. They can expand a law beyond what it was intended. They can decide whether or not to prosecute somebody based on political considerations. And then they can essentially find them guilty and force them to go to court. They can they have redress in the courts, but they don't have the judicial resources of government. And you mentioned these two cases of the Durham report. Durham found that Hillary Clinton, as you pointed out, committed a felony by hiring uh, a foreign national, two of them, in fact, Mr. Deshinko was a foreign national, as was Mr. Steele. And they paid them through three paywalls that were hidden from the public, the DNC, the Perkins Coie law firm, and Fusion GPS. And there were no consequences whatsoever for that. And the reason is Durham apparently made the decision that after the Sussman failure that you could not convict a left-wing prominent politician in a Washington courtroom. And I think he was probably wise about that. The other, uh, we see Mr. Comer, he's essentially said to the FBI, you have in your possession a document or documents that show that Joe Biden received money. That can be easily refuted or proved by simply subpoenaing uh bank records and see how whether the money is still there is it in a 401k is it in a bank account or if it's not did he have expenditures that exceeded the income that he reported so it would be very demonstrable whether that is a true or false allegation but the fbi won't produce the document and there's a the, the senses by the public that they would produce the document if it were somebody like donald trump because we know how they acted in the case of the Virginia parents or James O'Keefe or Peter Navarro or the raid on Mar-a-Lago. They're very eager, trigger happy to go after in a very public and spectacular way people they feel uh, don't share their, their agendas. So what do we do about it? That's kind of a more difficult answer. I think we have to break up these agencies that have been so uh, dangerous to the constitutional system. We could take the FBI we could put its terrorist division, its its internal interstate investigatory, uh, its work with the FISA court. We could divide them up between Treasury, Homeland Security, just split them up so they're not concentrated with that amount of power. And then we could take the national headquarters and we could put it in somewhere like Kansas City or, I don't know, Casper, Wyoming, to get it out of there. Because just to give one example, when we saw Andrew McCabe as in... He, he was the interim director. He lied four times under oath, as we, three times under oath, once just lied in public about leaking. But the point is, he was in charge of the Hillary Clinton investigation into the destruction of emails. 
and devices. But at the same time that he was doing that, his wife was running for office in Virginia and was a recipient of a Clinton Foundation-related Terry McAuliffe fund. So basically, his wife was getting money from Clintonites while he was investing Clinton. And that is inevitable in Washington, where they have these sibling relationships, marriage relationships, cocktail party relationships. And we saw that with Comey. We saw that with McCabe. We saw that with Mueller, who was Comey's friend. So I think we need to physically take the space out in the age of Zoom, which is much more practical, and get it out of Washington. And uh, as far as the CIA and the FBI, I would just add one other thing. If you lie under oath, under oath to Congress or a federal investigator, then there should be severe perjury penalties. And we know that John Brennan, the head of the CIA on two occasions, freely admitted that he lied to Congress under oath about uh, both drone operations and spying on Senate staff. We know that James Clapper lied under oath about NSA spying because he admitted that he did. And he said he gave the least untruthful answer. We know that Andrew McCabe, as I said earlier, confessed a lying four times to federal investigators. We know that Bob Mueller lied when he said he had no idea what Fusion GPS was, nor did he know anything about the Steele dossier. And those were the two catalysts that prompted his appointment. So we could start just enforcing the laws to these people who are de facto now exempt. Right. right. I mean, you mentioned fusion, GPS, basically also a marriage relationship. A, a lady was working for GPS and her husband yes. was a DOJ at a very senior position. Bruce, Bruce Orr. Orr. Right. Bruce and Nellie Orr, absolutely. And they, and they, were, they were transferring information from GPS as a conduit to give it the stamp of approval from DOJ. So no more, as soon as her husband was examining the material, they were leaking that the DOJ was uh, so worried about the authenticity of this that they were investigating, when in fact it was just a conversation between a married couple. Right, and when you mention what needs to be done, obviously there has to be a strong hand Obviously, all the Hawks Russia collusion that was orchestrated by a Hillary Clinton campaign was going against Trump because he was one of those people that could clean up these institutions. And when we think about the elections, we need the middle class. And in your book, you say, uh, and I quote, the American middle class has lost economic ground for nearly a half century through mounting household debts, static wages, and record student loan burdens. Without a middle class, society becomes bifurcated. It splinters into one of modern masters and peasants. In that situation, the function of government is not to ensure liberty, but to subsidize the poor to avoid revolution and to exempt the wealthy who reciprocate by enriching and empowering the governing classes." Unquote. Uh, there is an urgency to reverse the trend of America's diminishing middle class. Uh, Dr. Hanson, could you share your thoughts about how do we reverse this negative trend? Well, one thing we know is that the Democratic Party has metamorphosized from supposedly the support of the middle class to a party of the very, very wealthy. And I mean that in a lot of different ways. They outspent in the national campaign for president about two and a half times more money they can raise than the Republican candidates. If you look at congressional districts by either income or you look at zip codes by income, the wealthiest 
of the zip codes vote heavily Democratic, and the wealthiest of congressional districts vote heavily Democratic. And by that, I mean that we have a bicoastal elite that's exempt from the policies that they recommend for the middle class, whether it's raising here in California, banning trying to ban natural gas or raising kilowatt prices or the price of diesel fuel, $5 and 50 cents a gallon or opposing charter schools. All of those fall very heavily on the, on the middle class. And that's why they're leaving. Uh, they have a huge tax burden. They get very poor infrastructure in schools in return, but the democratic party then subsidizes the very poor. They're behind the open borders that brought in 7 million illegal entries. They're opposed to any reasonable work requirement for people on public assistance. And so they really don't care about the middle class. And there's now has become a racial element to it, to be frank. They demonize the so-called white privilege, white rage. They're not talking about themselves who really enjoy privilege. We're not talking when people say on The View that we've got to fight white supremacy, white rage. They're not talking about Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or Michael Bloomberg. They're talking about the people in East Palestine that they demonize. And we know that because of the rich vocabulary of disparagement, whether it was Hillary Clinton deplorables and irredeemables, or it was Joe Biden chumps and dregs, or it was Barack Obama clingers. They've, they've created a special category for what they think people are like between California and the Eastern seaboard. And they have nothing but for Kemp. They're the losers of globalization that I think Joe Biden at one point said, well, we're going to end fracking and maybe they can learn to, to code. And then I think Hillary Clinton went to West Virginia and said, we're going to put coal people out of business. So they have contempt for those people. And uh, that shows in the policies that they adapt. This administration does not care about the price of gasoline at the pump. They do not care about the price of electricity that people have to pay. The inflation has really soared under Joe Biden. They eliminate jobs. Uh, first thing Joe Biden did was shut down the Keystone Pipeline and put 10,000 people out of work. Right. And right. we're not energy in it sufficient anymore. So there's they do it in a variety of ways. And uh, they don't really talk about the middle class anymore the way they used to. It's all about diversity, equity, and the poor but they don't have much empathy. They feel the middle class is illiberal or not progressive anymore, and unions have declined. And I, I thought when I wrote the book, I went back and looked at the speeches at the 92 and 96 Democratic Convention. And at that point, the Bill Clinton Democratic Party was railing against an open border and the, <laughs> the danger of which cheap labor brought in by the Chamber of Commerce type supporters would undermine the middle class wages. They would never do that today. Mm. Right. That's right. certainly quite a drastic change. Yes, it is. And on the front, as we realize uh, and are concerned about what China is doing, in a piece written by Tunku Varadarajan in the Wall Street Journal titled, Henry Kissinger Surveys the World as He Turns 100. And he shares his conversation with Henry Kissinger, who was a first national security advisor and then secretary of state under presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. He writes, and I quote, doesn't Mr. Kissinger see China as an adversary? He chooses his words carefully. Kissinger states, I see China in the power it represents as a dangerous potential adversary. He puts noble stress on the qualifier. I think it may come to conflict. 
Here we have two societies with a global historic view, though different culture confronting each other. He continues, to prevent war with China, then the U.S. needs to refrain from being heedlessly adversarial and pursue dialogue instead. It certainly sounds like detente. And Professor Hansen, the notion of detente doesn't fit well with the known ambitions of an aggressive China and the communist government. From your vantage point, how is corporate America responding to this great concern shared by Americans on Main Street? And is the China threat being taken seriously by President Biden? No, he's not. And we saw that in March of 2021 when he sent Jake Sullivan and Mr. Blinken, Secretary of State, to Anchorage, and they were humiliated. We saw that when we were misled by our own government to cover up the appeasement on the Chinese balloon entrance into U.S. space, which did actually surveil American sites. We don't respond rhetorically even when they threaten to extinguish Taiwan. And, you know, they never really had to fess up to the origins and spread of COVID and the fact that it was no doubt now, I think the consensus is that it was a gain of function engineered virus and they knew that and they put a lid on it. And after they knew that it was highly infectious, about two to three million people in that two week period before the travel ban freely left Wuhan to LAX, SFO and JFK airports when it was illegal to leave Wuhan and travel internally in China. And so that there, a skeptic might say they knew that it got out of the laboratory. They knew that it was uncontrollable. They didn't want it to spread, but they really didn't care that other people shared their misery. That would be a, a charitable take on it. What I'm getting at is they have a long history of anti-American uh, activity. This is well besides dumping product below the cost, asymmetrical tariffs, um, currency manipulation, patent and copyright theft. 340,000 students, 380,000 are here. We think 1% of them. That's what the FBI has suggested. That's over three or 4,000 students are actively engaged in espionage. So they are also sending product of fentanyl to Mexican cartels, where they know that it crosses the border and kills 100,000 Americans. So by any classical definition, they're sort of an enemy of the United States. I would hope that Henry Kissinger understands that. And his caution is, well, they have 1.4 billion people. They have about a 1,500 nuclear weapons. So we have to be very cautious. And that he that I that you could spin from what he said, maybe it's time to speak softly and carry a big stick. If that's what it is, I agree with that. But we're not carrying a big stick because that's right. As you know, Mr. Austin has begged the Chinese to meet with him, and they don't want to meet with him. They've humiliated him. We have Mr. Milley, General Milley, who we know now contacted his Chinese communist counterpart and warned him should Donald Trump give an order of a strategic nature that he would contact the Chinese first and warn them about his own commander-in-chief. And we know that the Chinese have seen what we did in Afghanistan with that humilitary humiliating flight and the abandonment of 50 billion in military equipment that's ending up in, in the international arms mart and the, all of the sensationalized stories about drag queens and wokeness and millie and austin warning about white rage and white privilege and all of this nonsense so the chinese look at all that and the totality is 
they don't think that this administration or maybe even this state of America in this era is as deterrent as it used to be, and it gives them opportunities. And I think right now they're in a process of calculation, especially as they look at Ukraine and they're, it's just for them a cost to benefit decision. It's not a moral decision. They just want to know is Biden is failing. He's not, he's non compos mentes. Would he react if we went into Taiwan? Is, are we ever going to have a chance like this again? Or are they in permanent decline? Will they decline even more than they have now in five years? Or is this just a golden moment that we should? And I think it's a very perilous time in the next 24 months because whether they go into Taiwan or they attack an American ally depends entirely on a cost-to-benefit analysis. They have no moral compunction to do. And that's the nature of communism, especially. But So it's, it, it's something to worry about. I think Kissinger is afraid that we're talking tough, but we're not backing it up maybe with when he says to be careful, because he was a, a realist that believed in deterrence. But when you read about their capability of taking out $15 billion carriers and 5,000 Americans, you know, that send that would be on a carrier in the South China Sea. It's something to worry about. So we have to do our homework first. We've got to recalibrate our military. We've got to be care, be much tougher on Chinese students coming over here. And we have to bring a lot of these key industries like lithium and uh pharmaceuticals back to the united states and then we've got to we've really got to invest in our universities uh in stem disciplines and get back to a merit meritocratic system uh, the chinese are delighted about diversity equity inclusion and you know major universities abolishing the sat score and meritocratic criteria like gpas and stuff they think that's wonderful because they think we will not be as competitive in research and development. Right. But also, how do we put a deterrent uh, to China if Biden's family is receiving money from Chinese state-owned companies? Yeah. That's another issue. How well, that's, that's the elephant in the room, because when we look at these strange developments, as I mentioned in Anchorage, I've never seen American diplomats humiliated and dressed down and gave only a timid response. I couldn't imagine espionage devices that came from Alaska all the way through the transcontinental United States, and nobody said anything until they were forced to. Only a, a reporter happened to see it in Montana. I, I can't not. I cannot believe that a million Americans died from a Chinese-engineered virus, hmm. and we covered it up, or we were fighting over whether it came out of the lab. And all of a sudden, now the consensus is: well, it did. So what? So there has to be a reason, and there's been this speculation that when Hunter Biden was on Air Force Two and he he was dealing with the Chinese, and there would be no need to make five or six dummy uh, firewall companies between the Biden's recipient and the donor Chinese group interest, and yet that's what happened. And so if there wanted to be transparent, Christopher Ray at the FBI would just say, "There's nothing here. Go ahead and look at look at all you want. Right. That's your. Right. There's no problem. Mm. But obviously, his paranoia and Mr. Garland's efforts suggest to me that they are. This is a dynamite document, and they do not mm. want going into an election, given their history of interfering. They interfered in the 2016, and by the suppression of the laptop, they interfered in the 2020 election." 
And I think there's they're so paranoid now that they are, do not want to produce anything that would have a bearing on the election. And I say that cynically when I say anything, anything that would uh, favor a, a conservative point of view. Because when I say interfere, it was interfered from one side, as we know from the Russian collusion hoax and the laptop disinformation hoax. As we're looking at what's happening in the Asia-Pacific arena, the trans-Pacific dynamics there, we're also keeping a close eye on what's going on in the Middle East. And actually, this past week, The Economist ran a piece titled, Iran's religious leaders have nuclear bombs on demand with a subheadline, satellite pictures suggest America can't do much about it. And it states... I quote, satellite pictures appear to confirm that Iran is building a nuclear facility in the Zagros Mountains near the existing Nantas enrichment site. It seems to be so deep under the ground that it will be invulnerable even to America's most powerful bunker-busting bomb, unquote. And then we also see a report from Israel's I-24 that states that once Iran gets to a 90% uranium enrichment, between three and seven bombs could be produced within three months, unquote. Professor Hansen, what are your thoughts about Biden's policies toward Iran, a known state of terrorism? And will Israel, the Jewish state of Israel, have to step in in the absence of America and Biden's leadership? Well, Biden's policy, and indeed many of the architects that are responsible for Biden's Middle East, is a carryover, a continuation of Barack Obama's that was interrupted by Donald Trump. Donald Trump came in and said, get out of this asymmetrical missile deal, move the embassy to Jerusalem, re reify the fact that the Golan Heights are Israel, et cetera, et cetera. But they're, they've leapfrogged over that and brought back the Obama idea or the plan for the Middle East. And it was based on two principles. Number one, they despised the Likud government and the Netanyahu family because they felt that it mirror-imaged the right in, in Western society in general, and particularly in the United States. So they felt that these are conservatives, we don't like them. And they did, under Obama, we know they interfered in elections to try to weigh it against uh, Netanyahu. So they did not like Israel. The new left, the new progressive, hardcore Democratic Party, doesn't like Israel for reasons well beyond Netanyahu. They feel they're very sympathetic, as we saw from the speech of the leftists at the City University of New York's uh, law speech. They sympathize with terrorism on, they justify as uh, anti-colonialism or whatever the term they use. So they do not like Israel. The second thing, Obama felt that the way to stability in the Middle East was to take the Shia Persian axis and build it up. So he built up Iran with the Iran deal that he knew would lead to an Iranian bomb, but he would fob it off to the next administration. He knew that the Syrians and Hezbollah, Hezbollah and the Syrian government, Alawite government, were pro-Iranian. He knew that Hamas, even though it was Sunni, was pro-Iranian. And he knew that Lebanon was essentially a de facto Hezbollah surrogate. And he thought that this would be a crescent of power all the way from Tehran to the Mediterranean. And this would serve as a counterweight to what was developing as an alliance of convenience between regimes he did not like, 
the Saudi Arabians, the Kuwaitis, the Jordanians, the Israelis, the Egyptian. In this revolutionary leftist mindset of the Obama-Biden administration, they feel that these moderate Arab countries that were either in the Abrams Accord or about to join it were sellouts. They were not genuinely reflective of the revolutionary fervor of their people. And they needed people like Obama to remind them of that. And more importantly, I thought that Israel was a interloping colonialist Western insertion into an otherwise uh, Middle East indigenous country. And they took this new block and they said to the Israelis and the moderate Arabs, we don't like your governments and we're going to use these to balance the power. And so if you want to go in, uh, if you don't want to give back 100% of what was the border in 119, go back to the 67 borders and you won't listen to us, well, then you're going to deal with terrorism in Syria and Hamas, and you're going to deal with the threat of a nuclear weapon. And that's how they, they operated. Trump destroyed that, that formula. But unfortunately, as you saw, the first thing that this administration did was literally get on their knees and beg the Iranians to get back in that deal. And they were insulted terribly. And then they, they, they basically greenlighted that. We knew that the entire, entire time during the Trump administration, John Kerry was meeting in places like Paris and the ossified Logan Act to the extent that it exists. If it does exist, he was violating that because he was meeting with his Iranian counterparts to to maintain the framework of the Iran deal so he could pass it on to the next Democratic administration. So it's not an accident. It's not because of sloth or in, immaturity or incompetence. This is a deliberate policy to raise up the Shia Persian axis and almost in a historical sense of Obama, the community organizer saying that uh, these were the underdogs in the Middle East and we in America are going to raise them up to their their foreordained or their deserved place of parity with the Sunni Arabs. Mm, right. And uh, Dr. Hansen, I would like just to follow up on the bifurcation of, of American society uh, with your tweet, the recent tweet, and then just to tie it up, how the same people are destroying our foreign policy and domestically. And from your tweet, you say, and I quote, why do so many liberal climate activist grandees fly on private jets? Or why do those who profited from Black Lives Matter have a propensity for estate living? Or why do the community activist Obamas prefer to live in not one, but three mansions? The answer is that calls for radical equity, power for the people, and mandated equality are usually mostly sloganeering for those who enjoy power and the lucre it brings. And their wish is to augment both for themselves. Uh, so these people are destroying our foreign policy, are also destructing our society, our culture, our economy, and they're no different than former communists in Eastern Europe. No, they're very similar, very similar. And Dr. Hansen, why do Americans listen to and tolerate these people? Well, because because they we could ask that question, why after the Russian people threw out the czars and they had the Kerensky socialists and they were going to have a constitutional monarchy, why did they allow this minority Bolshevik Leninist party to hijack the revolution? Why did the French allow the Jacobins to have the reign of terror, the French revolutionaries? And I think the answer is 
you know, Alexis de Tocqueville, 1830s, examined America, and he came up with a very dangerous uh, analysis. He said, this is a wonderful country. If it wasn't for free land and the ability for the middle class to have an autonomous farm, it would go into the same pathologies of Europe, of a two-class system. And he, what he meant was that, and he said this explicitly, human nature being what it is, most people would rather be equal and poor than all better off, but have some people way better off because of the powers of innate envy. And the left knows that. And so these architects feel a John Kerry flying on a jet, an Al Gore with an energy, uh, voracious home. They feel that they're anointed and they need extra power, extra exemptions, never to be responsible for the consequences of their own deleterious uh, ideologies to help the people, to make everybody equal. Even if it means they're poor, they don't care. They would rather have all of us poor, but equal. And then they are exempt. They're the Nama, as you know, from Eastern Europe and Russia, the nomenclatura. They, they're exempt. They have the DACA on the, on the Black Sea. And they, they, every once in a while, you can really see this phenomenon with the Obamas. They're making millions of dollars. They have a big mansion in Colorado and DC. They have one in Martha's Vineyard. They have one now in Hawaii, but every once in a while to restore or to maintain their revolutionary fides, Michelle or Barack will come out of their home and they'll make a public statement and they'll say, uh, black people are being murdered in the streets of Chicago by the police, or they'll say, uh, endemic racism, and they don't really mean it because we look at their lives and they live segregated lives among the elite, and they're not known. Barack Obama will never go back to his fourth home in Chicago, very nice home, and move back where he was before he went. He's not going to be Harry Truman and go back to his prior residence and then work in community organizing to stop the 10 or 15 people who are killed on a weekend every night in Chicago or the 10,000 nationwide in the inner city. He's beyond that. Mm -hmm. So what he'll do is be on a private yacht with David Geffen and, and hang out with the celebrities. But then every once in a while, like a Russian apparat, he will have to, to mouth some revolutionary slogan. And same thing with the Biden family. Biden family has made over $50 million. They probably didn't report a great deal. It, there's a lot of tax exposure. But every once in a while, Joe Biden will get out and say, you know, we have to tax the rich because they're parasitic on the people and they, they, they have to pay their fair share. Well, he didn't pay. It wasn't that he didn't pay his fair share. He paid no, no share mm -hmm. on these, this money that he, that came in from overseas governments. But it's very important uh, for very well, you know, some people make their money and they have no apologies. They say that we're law abiding, we're very gifted. And we don't want the government to tell us how to spend it. And we're going to be private philanthropists. And then there's other wealthy people who feel that they can make more money by attacking uh, this free market system that enriched them mm -hmm. and idealizing and romanticizing the distant poor with the proviso that they're never going to live with it. Their kids are never, ever going to be in the public schools, but they're going to blast charter schools mm -hmm. or they're going to praise uh, teachers union. They everybody should pay 30 cents per kilowatt here in Fresno, but they don't care. They have enough money or they live on a coastal climate where it's neither hot nor cold. 
And so every the thing that we, we have to realize about this new bicoastal elite, it's fairly new. It's got money that never been seen in the history of civilization, $9 trillion of market capitalization between San Francisco and Silicon Valley. And these people had globalized skills, law, media, tech, finance, insurance, with a $8 billion uh, market. And the money was of such a magnitude, they became utopian. And they had contempt for the people who were muscular or could not adapt to the global economy. They said they were losers. They were drags. As I said, they were deplorable. But they are cosmopolitans. They're citizens of the world. And uh, they're very dangerous people because they have no affinity for the country that nourished them. And they feel that they're exempt, as I said earlier, from any... Uh, allegiance to their own ideology. If they really, really believed in power mm. of the people and a mandated equality result, then they would live that way. Mm. They would put their kids in the Oakland school system. They would live in Oakland. They would be community organizers, but they don't do that. Mm. That's so true. Yeah. We truly appreciate your clear insights, Professor Hansen, and we thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. And Professor Hansen is a senior fellow in residence in classics and military history at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. And we encourage our engaged listeners to visit victorhansen.com, victorhansen.com. Thank you so much indeed, Professor Hansen. Thank you so much, Professor. Hansen. Thank you. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Sami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com.